Welcome to Light Trees and News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. I'm joined today by, holy shit, Meredith. Oh my God, it's so nice to be here. Oh my God, it's so great to have you. Everybody, this is a huge day for a number of reasons, one of which is I finally have a name to call you little guys. Sorry, I just called you little guys um, because I had, you know, noticed the other day that I don't have a name for Light Trees and News listeners. So I was like, you know what? Let's make this a, a full democratic movement. Send me some of your top options for what you want to be called. And it really came down to two options. There was Little Traders, which I thought was adorable, and Troublemakers. I had all of you vote on Instagram and Twitter. And lo and behold, I don't know if you can even believe this, Meredith, but apparently um, there are very different people who have very different tastes on Instagram and Twitter because it was the exact inverse of each other, what you guys wanted. Instagram really liked little traders. Twitter really liked troublemakers. But in the end, troublemakers won. So henceforth, forever into eternity, you shall be known as troublemakers. And if you don't like that outcome, I'm so sorry. But I do understand why some people (laughs) didn't want to be known as traders. Given, you know, if the political winds um, change you know, anytime soon, if the fascists take even more control than they already have, probably don't want to be identifying yourselves as traitors, considering they will identify you as a traitor for you. So I understand that. So I think Troublemakers is a a good decision. And also I do end every episode saying get out there and cause a little trouble. So I thought that was cute. Yeah. And I understand, you know, the democratic process, just because we have love for and are willing to call ourselves traitors, other people may not feel like it. A hundred percent. I fully get that. So I, I love this option. I love you being troublemakers. And yeah, so I wanted to make that announcement. Also, this is a very exciting episode because, and I've been teasing this for a while, I'm really trying to pivot into uh, creating um just like a pop culture show and you know not so heavy on the politics although I don't want to close that door entirely you know because I like if say there's a huge decision say if the supreme court um throws out Roe v Wade I would like the option to talk about it on the show but I also didn't like the sort of you know pressure of in this section, we have to talk about politics. In this section, we have to talk about good news, you know, because <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, sometimes my good news stories were like, um, kind of crowbarred in. So if it happens, it happens. But I always hated cutting off the pop culture section because I felt I had to go into something else. And I was like, why am I doing this? It's my show. Um, and you know, uh, she's getting invited to more premieres lately. And whenever I have Meredith on the show, like Meredith always has really cool recommendations that I feel like we have to rush through. So we're going to take our time in this episode because we've got a lot of dope shit that we want to talk about. Oh, yeah. And yeah, given the number of times that you and I have texted each other in the run up to actually recording saying like, fuck, do you have any good news that we can have? Oh, every week I like Meredith would get a frantic text from me 20 minutes before we were supposed to record. Like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Did anything good happen this week? And unfortunately, oftentimes the answer was no. (laughs) So (laughs) sometimes we just had to like put gossip in the good news section. Like, did something bad happen to someone we hate? Can we talk about that? Is that's good news, right? So in this episode, I let's just like I we gotta address the the beautiful woman on the horse in the room right renaissance oh, absolutely. dropped yes congratulations and everyone your summer yes. has been solved and i have to say like i saw somebody these were very funny tweets but they were basically like i can't believe beyonce held this like the first half of the summer when she had this like amazing album <laughs> under wraps and i was like I don't know. I kind of feel like it was brilliant when she dropped it because it felt like, you know, we were waning a little bit in the summer and this really seemed to kick everybody in the ass in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. And as Um, we've been saying, we needed some disco. So this is what I was like freaking out about because I had heard a rumor on TikTok like a few weeks ago that it was going to be 
a very disco-y album. And I got so excited because I was like, I love Beyonce. I love every version of Beyonce. Um, But, you know, her past couple albums have been like very heavy and in like understandable, amazing ways. But I was like, I really miss like dance music, Beyonce. And so I, there, I'm, and I'm so sorry. I wish I had the person's name, which, whichever TikTok this was. But he was like, I have a theory because Beyonce is very deliberate in her imagery that she puts out to the public. And there's been like a lot of like, you know, like 70s inspired fashion choices. There's been like an actual disco ball in some of the imagery that he was like, I think it's going to be a disco album. And I sent this to Meredith and I was like, I want this to be true so badly that if it's not, I'm going to be heartbroken. And guess what, motherfuckers? It's a disco album. <laughs> oh, Now, you, do we think uh, Act 2 is going to be a disco album or is Act 2 going to be something else? Because this is Renaissance Act 1. Oh, God. These are the questions I just don't feel equipped to answer anymore because I, I just want to bathe in the house music. <laughs> so thinking ahead, you know, I'm currently it's 1am on the dance floor and I feel like I could go all night. I'm not ready to think about what happens at 3am. I've been trying to rank the tracks in my head and I don't think I can, first of all, because I've, I've probably only listened to the album all the way through three times. So it feels irresponsible to try to do that, but I got to give it up for that crazy transition between energy and break my soul. I was walking at maybe like five 30 in the morning. And when that happened, I like did a little skip because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> this is so good. Oh my God. But you know, church girl, Virgo's groove, cuff it. I feel like there are like four or five absolute bangers on this album, which like I mean, right now she apparently occupies nine of the 10 top spots on Apple music. Yeah, that tracks. It tracks. Uh, it's Beyonce. <laughs> like, that's yeah. what she does. But also, even for Beyonce, I'm like, this is an excellent album. Yeah. And I'm I'm partial to Alien Superstar because the beat is so oh, like, yeah. hard. Yes, but yes, yes. I, you know, I think that my favorites might change depending on how many times I listen to it. Yeah, that's how I feel, too. And I also saw some people being very cautious, like, Sometimes when a review comes out for an album, like 24 hours after it dropped, it's like overly glowing and, and, you know, they have to sort of walk it back (laughs) after (laughs) they listen to it a few times. But I really don't think that's going to happen with this album. It's, it's quite good. And it dropped at exactly the right time. And guess what? This will be shocking to hear. Beyonce is very good at this. Yeah, she uh, she gets it. I mean, and people felt so loyal to her that they didn't listen to the leaked stream. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. When she posted on Instagram, she's like, even though the album leaked, you guys waited for it to finally to really drop. Like, like, let's just put it this way. Beyonce has a more powerful surveillance, like, hold over people in terms of the conceptual surveillance state than I think uh, the U.S. government does. I mean, that (laughs) truly doesn't surprise me. And I think you're right. Had I known that, yeah, you know what? Had I known it leaked, I probably would not have listened to it. But I missed all that. I just woke up to, holy shit, the album dropped. Because I, it's weird. I had been counting it down the days and then I forgot about it because I got busy and so it was like a fun surprise when I woke up and I was like, oh, why do I have alert an alert from Spotify? Oh, my God, it's Renaissance. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then I could only text Meredith the word Renaissance in all caps the whole day. That's the only way I could communicate. Yeah, it took it took almost the entire day. I think I think the first time you didn't do it was when I asked you what time we had said we were going to record this morning. And then you had to, you had to like dig yourself out of the Renaissance hypnosis <laughs> to actually like tell me what we'd agreed on. I mean, I did not want to dig myself out this morning. I got excited. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I can listen to Renaissance again. Like I forgot that was another, an option. I could re-listen to the album. Um, so yeah, guys, shockingly, I know you'll all be very surprised to hear this. Meredith and I enthusiastically recommend Renaissance. 
which I'm happy about because I feel like a, a positive that will come out of the recommendation section being larger is like, for example, everybody, I have stopped recommending books on this show, which is nutty because I read quite a bit. So, you know, we can bring book recommendations back into the fold, which is very exciting. But like album recommendations, because, you know, I, I'm aware not everybody watches an insane amount of television and movies like Meredith and I do. So recommendations can be for anything, guys. Like you, you working on a fun puzzle right now. Boom. In the recommendation section. So did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with Renaissance? Uh, no, I'm good. We can move to the to the big fun. The big fun. We saw nope, motherfuckers. And here's the thing. Are there going to be spoilers? Absolutely. Because we want to talk about nope a bunch. So if you have not seen it, save this episode in your little phone and then come back at a future date when you're curious. You're like, what did they think of nope? I've seen nope now. But, you know, we're going to talk about it for a while. There's no way to talk about it without spoilers. So you've been warned. I don't want any little angry emails or texts from or texts. Oh, my God. If I gave my phone number to people, can you imagine? Oh, my God. Tweets, tweets, DMs. Don't be mad. Spoilers. Nope. Uh, so I guess just umbrella statement. I loved this film and I know it's very divisive. Um for a number of reasons, but I really, really loved it. And I've thought about it probably every day since I've seen it. Yeah, same. And I think uh, I'm genuinely surprised that it's divisive because I felt like there was, it was so obviously reaching towards all these different homages to other filmmakers. It clearly was so ambitious. It had a really effective and moving emotional core. The acting is great. Um, the creature design is really cool. So to me, I don't get the haters, but we can definitely get into why, you know, what people have, have had problems with. Cause I think uh, I thought it was just like a really thrilling success. And I want Jordan Peele to just swing this big every fucking time. Yeah, 100%. So I won't claim to know what all of the criticisms are because, you know, certainly I haven't had time to go through all of the reviews of Nope. But just from what I've heard from my friends whose tastes I trust, who have seen it, who I should say no one disliked it, but the people who were a little more like, when they answer like this, did you like it? And they go, yeah. I'm like, okay, why did you answer that way? Generally, the response I have gotten is they felt very like disoriented by it. Like they thought it was going to be one thing and they went in and it was really something else. And they weren't quite sure what the message was that they should mm -hmm. be taking away. Like for, for a lot of people, let's just get to uh, the Gordy in the room. So uh -huh. <laughs> there is a storyline. My favorite part. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's the cold open of the film, which is very, very ballsy of Jordan Peele. But, you know, he's a, a fucking genius who rightfully feels like it seems like he knows that he has a certain cachet now. And he's like, I have earned the respect that I can open the film in this way, which is a storyline you did not know was going to be in this film, which is um, Stephen Yu's uh, character when he's a, a little boy, was a child actor. He was on set on the show called Gordy's Home that featured a chimpanzee actor named Gordy, who one day is um, frightened. There are some helium balloons on set. One drifts up to the lights and pops, and Gordy, Gordy reverts to his animal instincts and goes on a rampage and, I believe, kills the, the dad, the actor who plays the dad. I think he kills both of the parents. No, well, the the woman is the... She shows up at the rodeo later on. No, no, her. that's the daughter. He just <gasps> eats her face. He doesn't kill her. I thought that was the mom. No. I, if you watch the credits or if you watch the special bit of content that's the theme song, like the opening credits for Gordy's Home that 
Jordan Peele dropped a few days after the movie came out. But mm-hmm. yes, Mary Jo is supposed to be his sister. Oh, okay. So kills both the parents and then mauls the, I mean, eats her face. And um, so I think for a lot of people, they were sort of like very thrown off. That's how the film opens. And then they were sort of like, how does this connect to um, Daniel and Kiki's storyline on the ranch? And like, what, just like, what is the message we're supposed to take from this? Because, you know, I feel like Jordan Peele has sort of um, been given this burden after Get Out, which is his films are a, have some social message. That's what audiences, a lot of audience members expect of him, which I think is unfair. <laughs> it's oh, like, I was going to say, I think that's absolute bullshit that yeah. because he made movies that had some level of commentary, like, or at least a good amount of social commentary for his first two films that they think, okay, everything's going to have a meaning about our actual society. And I think like, that's, that's too much to put on a filmmaker. Like he should be allowed to have fun too. A hundred percent. Having said that, I do think this film has messages, but they potentially are up for debate, which I think is cool. And what should happen after you leave a film, like you should have stuff to talk about. So I'm not claiming to know what those messages are. I'll just give my impression. But um, so we open with this like horrific, horrific animal attack, which I just have to give it up to uh, the visual uh, effects department because that chimpanzee looked very good. And apparently yeah. they they built an entire set with, um, you know, larger furniture and had an actor play the chimpanzees so they could like, mimic his movements and stuff like that but it was it looks so real that it I think it's one of the most unsettling things I've ever seen (laughs) in a film maybe that's just because like you know you remember the 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 chimp attack woman who yes again yeah had her face eaten by a chimp that whole story really I mean, I, I'm, I know it upset everybody, but like it upset me in such like a visceral way. Like the idea of a chimpanzee attacking you and eating your face <laughs> is so scary and horrifying and like something that you just like want to put out of your mind forever as soon as you hear it. And then seeing it actually happen in Nope, I was like, and I should say it's like tastefully done. Like you don't see him actually do it. She's partially hidden behind a couch he just emerges with like his face covered in blood, but it is so scary. And it was, it was scary in a way that like I wasn't braced for with Nope. I did not know it would be unsettling in that way. Right. I mean, I kind of was ready. I thought, okay, I know there's going to be aliens involved, but then all of a sudden it starts with this chimp who's covered in blood, tapping the foot of this (laughs) girl, this kid, and you heard, like, you get the audio of the lead into it. And then you cut and you're like, what the fuck is happening? It's completely disorienting. And all you see is this shoe balanced on its heel perfectly with Which one is such a, drop of blood while it's such the a beautiful, It's such a beautiful image. And, like, it just, it really hammered home the fact that Jordan Peele, I think, is one of the best visual storytellers working <laughs> right now. Like that imagery of the shoe being balanced really delicately after this horrific attack. And then of course, later on, Steven Yen's character, like putting that in a museum because like it's him trying to process trauma was fascinating. How did you interpret that little foot tap by Gordy? Cause I interpreted it as him not really understanding that he had killed her and sort of being like, Hey, we're playing. Right. But, other people I spoke to was like, he's checking to make sure she's dead. No, because I thought to me it was he was checking to he wanted to play with her. That to him he was like, yeah. oh, I I like I you. thought it was like, like the- Yeah, I thought it was like him going back to like sweet Gordy, like, hey, what happened? We were playing, right? And like, yeah. but other people I know were like, no, no, no. He was checking to make sure she was dead if he had finished her off. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess I can see that, but I, I do disagree. I think that he uh he was having a moment of like oh you know this is the you know uh, you're my co-star like this is you know how we we do this because and then you see that kind of come back because he wants to do the fist bump with yes. jube before that's why he I, yeah. 
That's why I assumed he was playing because he like of that moment that comes after where he's like so gentle again. And then they, of course, shoot him in the head because he has gone on a rampage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's the reason I was like, no, I think he's something like flipped in his brain where he went back to like domesticated Gordy, which I think is what Jordan's trying to explore, you know, like that very, very thin veil between predator and prey, <laughs> you know, yeah. where it's like. Well, and, and the the danger of expecting creatures that you are training to yes. always uh, to always Obey do what you. you expect and recognizing that there is always an inherent danger. Speaking of animal co-stars, there Rosie is <laughs> making weird noises in the background. So if there's a disturbance, it's because somehow she wants a toy from her toy bin, Aww. but doesn't seem to know how to get it, even though she knows it. So uh, I am the trained animal co-star, by the way. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, like the thing that really so like getting into the the main story because we can you know I want to come back to Gordy later, but you know the main story is also really beautiful and that's the one you know and it's this is why I felt this was so like such a Spielberg esque story because it's about making films, making entertainment, the labor of filmmaking, you know these brother and sister take over the you know brother takes over the family business after their father dies in a freak accident that is described you know they say is debris from a plane uh or trash nickels through the eye yeah uh falls from the sky and kills him so then you know daniel's trying to do this and of course because he is a john wayne kind of character taciturn difficult to like sort of introverted doesn't have a lot to say uh so he's not exactly he's really bad at the business side of doing this work but his sister is the consummate hustler super charismatic and i love the fact that she has a million jobs because it's like yep that's that's what hustling is she's like trying to do a million different things and i love that opening scene where so Otis Haywood Sr. is is the the father who is tragically killed in this seemingly random act. Um, and it was so cool to see Keith David. We didn't get enough time with him, <laughs> you know, um, but he's just got such gravitas and such an amazing presence that he like instantly understood like this is the man. This is the man who's been in charge for many, many years. And as Meredith said, um, OJ, his name is OJ, OJ Hayward, Daniel Kaluuya's character, is like almost mute. Like he he's a very internalized character. Um, the one criticism I've seen of the acting in this film is that Daniel comes off as a little um, muted in his performance. And I think that's 100 percent deliberate. He is John Wayne in this film. He has a very difficult time articulating himself because like he has lived a really quiet, solitary life on this ranch and he's just expected to work every day. This is not a family where he was like raised to, you know, uh, talk a lot. In fact, Kiki's character is sort of the anomaly that she's so extroverted. Uh, Emerald is like the show woman of the family. She shows up and she sells their business and she's an essential part of the business. But she's very different <laughs> than her brother and her father. So, like, obviously, Kiki's getting a lot of praise because she's a fucking star and has been for so many years and is incredible and should be way more famous than she is, even though I feel like she's finally getting her dues, but it took forever. But I thought Daniel Kaluuya was great in this role. Yeah, well, and I think that their relationship wouldn't have worked if he were more communicative. Like, Right. There are people who are a thousand percent more comfortable with animals than they are with people. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, and they seem like infuriating aliens to people that have more outgoing personalities because they don't you don't understand why the hell this person won't have a no- like can't have a normal conversation. <laughs> and they're just right. like, nope, I got to do this. Uh and that's, you know, this, I could see that dynamic and also how someone would, because of that, it's a forest for the trees thing. Like 
I'm selling the horses because I'm trying to keep the ranch, but also like by not working, like by not feeling comfortable, like my inability to feel comfortable with other people and engage with this other side of things is endangering the business because I can't do it by myself. But like men always think they can do it alone. A hundred percent. Yeah. And also the fact that I really like that opening scene where I guess we should say that um, the Haywood Ranch, these are um, a family of horse trainers that the legend is that they're great, 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 great. How many greats? Grandfather, um, Edward, uh, I forget his name, but he was the the man in the first motion picture short, which was a black man riding a horse. And they are his descendants. And they started this ranch where they train horses to be in Hollywood movies and commercials and stuff like that. So that we meet uh, the brother and sister on set after their father has been tragically killed in this seemingly random accent. Um, and they are using one of their horses in, I think, a television show or something like that. So I thought Jordan did an amazing job quickly establishing their dynamic as brother and sister. We have an extrovert and an introvert. Kiki comes in charms everybody instantly and then walks off with um, the director, I think, and they're having a little private uh, talk off to the side. And it's so interesting because you understand why OJ is mad at Emerald, but also you're like, dude, you're projecting your own insecurity on your sister because you were doing a shitty job before she showed up (laughs) to like explain to everybody what the business is and what y'all do and like really sell your business to these people, which you get the impression that like her father gave that speech too. And she's like, all right, well, this is what we got to do. We got to like come in here and sell ourselves. But he's also like trying to get her attention and like, she's distracted. So you have this moment of empathy with him too, before ultimately, you know, the horse gets spooked and kicks the makeup artist in the face, (laughs) I believe. Um, or, or nicks her, um, so, yeah, I but I thought like in all great movies, you need to like quickly establish the dynamics between the characters before you can get the plot going. And I thought that scene was just so efficient, like really, really good, um, efficient storytelling. And also it does reveal one of our like, if you want to call it political, I hate calling it political because it sounds like the opposite of artistic. But, you know, talking about like a lineage of black horse trainers in Hollywood, which is not real, by the way, like this is complete fiction that Jordan Peele came up with the, the image of the black man on the horse, I believe is real, but like the whole story of him being a horse trainer in Hollywood and all that stuff is fake, but it did feel like Jordan Peele trying to be like Hollywood is very white (laughs) And this would be like very significant, you know, if this was a, a family of of black horse trainers. Uh, yeah. And I think so, you know, you set this up. This is how we get the, you know, and then after I mean, we could just end up walking through the entire film. So I'm trying to figure out how we, you know, we get to this, you know, long story short. Daniel's been selling OJ has been selling the horses to. Stephen Yoon's character, who now, as an adult, after being a child star in the 90s, runs a kitschy Old West theme park for, you know, called Jupiter's Claim, based on so his bad. nickname as a child. Uh, yeah, don't, my one, yeah. <laughs> one complaint of this movie, maybe not my only complaint, but one of the only ones I have is that we don't get enough time with Stephen Yoon. And I do... You know, once you realize, like, why we opened on Gordy's home and Steven Yoon is now this, like, adult <laughs> showman, like this actor pretending to be a rancher, trying to capitalize on this horrific thing that happened to him. Because he's not just famous because he was on Gordy's home. He's famous because of the tragedy that happened during Gordy's yeah. home. That's why Gordy's home is infamous now. It's known as the the chimp attack show. And you see very quickly that he's not over it. You know, the way that they, we don't need to get into the full details, but yes, you see, you know, he starts talking about what happened. They ask him more questions. He immediately references a Saturday night live sketch that uh, parodies it rather than actually talking about what happened. And you kind of see this face, like he's clearly never dealt with it, but is 
so determined to hold on to the stardom that mm-hmm. he just like he's still basically working with a wild animal except the wild animal is his trauma and will yeah. eventually like fuck him <laughs> I love the idea of trauma as a wild animal because you are trying to wrangle it. You're trying to control it. You're trying to ride it when you can't stay on top of it, you know, not let it trample you to death. Yeah, I love the ideas of trauma as a wild animal. And to me, that's one of the major themes of the film. And I know it's so like eye at this point to be like, this film's about trauma, but this film is about trauma and about how nostalgia can prevent you from accurately processing your trauma because we see this horrific flashback of Gordy's home and then we cut to the present with Steven Yoon and he smiles and says it was wonderful or something like that. Like he's trying to, he's either in denial or he has convinced himself that it was an overall positive experience when in fact it was the most horrific thing that has happened to him. Yeah. And I feel like that was especially powerful for me, given the era that we grew up in and the way that child stardom, I mean, and that's always, it's always been true, but because of the way celebrity media functioned, think of all of the child stars that were, that were or have been consumed by fame and the desperation to continue it as an adult and how that doesn't work out. Yeah. So having been surrounded by that- (laughs) And we know this is all deliberate and that he's exploring all of this because guess what? TMZ is a character in this film, um, which we'll get to in a second. But you know what we haven't really talked about yet? Aliens, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which just yeah. shows you there's a lot of layers in this film that we're now a half an hour in. We have not talked about the aliens. So it turns out that Otis Haywood Sr. was not killed randomly, that uh, the debris falling from the sky came from Uh, what we think is a spaceship in the beginning because it looks exactly like a spaceship. It moves exactly like a spaceship. That is what human human beings believe it to be, that it's a spaceship. Um, And eventually Steven Yoon and his family becomes aware of the spaceships as well. And they try to incorporate it into their act as like a sideshow attraction, which is so funny. Like a hundred percent, that's what would happen, right? (laughs) Oh, I, yes, absolutely. There would somebody, I mean, there's also like, because the movie is about capitalism and cap, mm-hmm. like finding ways to make money off of some, like of things we don't understand. And that could be dangerous. <laughs> right. Like uh, Kiki is part of that too. She, she sees an opportunity to like get on Oprah and show a video of um, alien life. And she says like, we got to get serious about this. We got to set up cameras so they go to like Best Buy, right? <laughs> and they're essentially like, we don't know really anything about tech. So they talk to this guy, Angel, played by um, Brandon Perea, who I thought I was going to hate. I thought I was going to hate that character. And then he became like so idiosyncratic and sort of quirky and not what I thought he was going to be that I ended up really liking him. But they hire him to install a a bunch of cameras on the ranch so they can catch this fucking alien spaceship in action. Um, So I guess let's like skip ahead just because, yeah, I don't want to go like plot point by plot point. It turns out, everybody. So at at some point, they also um, they enlist the help of a cinematographer um, named Antlers Holst. Great name. Uh, played by the wonderful Michael Wincott, who, my God, does he have the best voice in Hollywood? (laughs) Someone made a joke about how it was too bad that it it sucked that Keith David was killed off so early in the film, but they had to do it because if they had had, if they had Keith David and Michael Wincott speaking in the same scene, it would have like ruined all of the sound equipment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And all of our ears would have started bleeding from the goodness. Yeah. To, um, to like, yes. Yeah, so like one of the greatest, he was in the early nineties, three musketeers, the crow, Robin hood, Prince of Thieves. Okay. Like he's been, he was the villain in all kinds of movies. He's got the best voice ever. And he, in the early nineties looked like he was a member of the band collective soul. So it was a welcome, welcome, welcome return for an actor that I like 
remember being in everything when I was and a it's, kid. And it's such a great move uh, and on yeah, Jordan Peele's part very to make him a cinematographer like, and not a director. Like, to me, that was very like, who's looking for the perfect this shot. is a man the, who understands cinematography. <laughs> so, and, and in yeah. a weird way, I think really respects them because ultimately what he's trying to say through this character is Antlers is willing to die to get the perfect shot because, <laughs> well, he's insane, but also he so loves his craft that when he sees something in his head, it's like nothing will stop him, um, which in a way is beautiful. And in another way is like so deeply tragic because as we know with antlers, um, he dies trying to get a, a shot of the quote unquote spaceship, which we learn to find is not a spaceship, but an animal who is also a predator who is hunting humans. And when this animal quote unquote abducts someone, what is actually happening is uh, they are eating you and then they yeah. spit out what they can't use. And that's the debris that falls from the sky and, and, you know, killed um, uh, Otis in the beginning. So th- this is an animal. This is an animal that's hunting them from the sky, which is terrifying. And there's a wh- horrific scene um, at Steven Yoon's ranch where during this act where he's trying to incorporate the alien into his act, he, along with his entire family and the entire audience watching them, are abducted at the same time. And we see them sucked up into this animal. And it is like so claustrophobic and so well shot and terrifying where you just Jordan lingers on the face of um, Stephen Yoon's wife, uh, Amber, and she's just like screaming because she's so terrified. It's very haunting and well done. <laughs> Yes. Uh, So, you know, as they realize they're still trying to get the shot because they recognize that they still need it, even though they're figuring out. And, you know, this is where OJ's taciturn love of animals comes in handy because he figures out that it's an animal and not a, uh, a device. So they have, you know, it's then you get the ragtag, let's make a film element of it, which is so beautiful and so much fun. And because and there are some really terrifying like parts of it, Mm -hmm. like the the night when he's trying to get back to them after he discovers what's happened to everyone at Jupiter's claim. Oh, my God. I just I was clutching my chest while watching this. The suspense is really harrowing, even when you know what's going on. This is a scary, scary film. This is a really scary film. And it's scary in like a really like visceral. uh, I don't like I don't want to say primitive, but like it was like scaring me in a way that I haven't been scared (laughs) in a while watching. Primal. Primal is what you mean. Primal. Yeah. 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 Like a very like primal sort of way where like. Yeah, it's very good. Um is what I'm trying to say, everybody. But yeah, one of the things that um, OJ discovers in addition to it's an animal, not a spaceship, is if you don't look it in the eye, it doesn't antagonize it. So, I mean, which is basically asking the impossible of people, right? If you see what you think is a spaceship, it's reflexive. You look up, right? But he figures out if he doesn't look at it, it won't um, perceive him as aggressive. It won't eat him. So... OJ discovers those two things and decides, and the moment I realized he was going to do this is when he named it Jean Jacket. (laughs) He named the alien uh, after one of their horses that he was going to try to wrangle an alien, which once I realized that was going to happen, I was like, you good on you, Jordan Peele. This is a fucking good time right here. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yes, this is, and I don't even know how much we need to get into the rest of it because we've covered so, we've set it all up in this way. But, you know, what I found, I just felt like my adrenaline was pumping really hard the whole time, like during the last 45 minutes of the movie. And seeing them, you know, watching them like figure things out, the, the, the fact that there was such a, believable and moving uh interaction between emerald and oj during this incredible action sequence uh oh yeah and i mean like i loved 
Well, first, <laughs> before we get to the ending, ending, I did think it was deeply funny. And I was like, okay, Jordan, when he's like exploring, you know, all of these themes of like predator and prey. And I always find it really funny when somebody becomes very famous and very wealthy that suddenly TMZ becomes like the biggest villain in their life. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> okay. I, I do get that they like violate your privacy and they're gross and all that stuff. But I, I thought the TMZ guy was cool when he showed up. He looked very cool, like in that helmet. And I was like, all right, I don't think TMZ looks this cool <laughs> and this slick when they show up to like violate your privacy. But, you know, there was this exploration of celebrity and like uh, what the pieces of ourselves we give away in order to be famous. I thought it was a little heavy handed that as the alien was about to kill the TMZ guy, he's screaming, did you get a photo of it? Did you give a photo of it? I was like, OK, OK, we get it. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> Would this man be screaming this in this moment? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he's very committed, a very committed TMZ employee. But I was like, okay, Jordan, I get it. You don't like TMZ. Um, But this all comes before we actually see the alien. It's in its like full magnificence when it becomes like a a Seeger Ross sort of like imagery where it's like this giant, beautiful jellyfish in the sky unfolding. And that I was like not prepared for. I was like, this is so legitimately beautiful and it like it makes you wonder you know different time different place this would be like a miracle to see you know and we get that great line from oj early in the film where he goes what do you call a bad miracle yeah but like in that moment you're looking at it and you're like this is a bad miracle where it's like it's so beautiful but it's gonna fucking kill you guys you know um and i just thought the imagery of it was stunning oh, and i've absolutely. never seen and anything it, like it and it, yeah. It, yeah beautiful creature design i mean actually like well thought out it, it, it was original used you know it felt did feel natural i think maybe i've just watched too many like it was such a nice break from the the stranger things kind of aesthetic that's taken over all monster movies recently um it actually looked different and that felt exciting um but it also just it fit beautifully with the um with the landscape i mean it's all taking place in this valley outside of los angeles so there's lots of there's tons of space and it takes up space in a beautiful way uh which really excited me and i thought like I, it, it actually inspired a sense of awe. And again, this is why I felt like it was the most Spielbergy of Jordan Peele's movies in the best possible way, because. Yeah. I mean, the entire ending is an homage to Jaws in the best way where, (laughs) you know, Kiki figures out that um, if this thing eats something really big that's artificial, it will actually kill it because obviously it's spitting out all of the inedible items for a reason. And it's that it's bad for its system. And in fact, when it eats up the entire ranch audience, it's like too much for its little tummy and it ends up like throwing up all over their house. (laughs) Which was gross as hell and also hilarious. (laughs) Very funny. Once you realize like, oh, it just like had a tummy ache, like that's kind of funny, but also so horrifying to see blood rain down like that. So she figures out if it eats something really big, it'll probably die. So there's a great scene at the end right before she ends up killing it and winning where they cut loose this giant inflatable um, dude (laughs) who's like at the ranch to advertise the show. It drifts up. The alien eats it. Um, But Kiki's whole mission is to get a photo of this thing. So she's using this like tourist attraction camera that's a well that if you crank a handle, it takes like still photos of whatever's immediately above the well, which happens to be the alien. But I love that moment because it, it, it connects back to her ancestor on the horse, you know, making a film and that really like. Well, making a film that's just like, that's a progression of still photographs. Yeah. Yeah. And she gets this photo that like, it's interesting because it, she gets the thing that she's been trying to get the whole movie and it's ultimately disappointing. It's not, seeing it in person which I think is another commentary on this like this struggle this artistic struggle of trying to capture something and and capture that magic that you can't get ever (laughs) you know you keep chasing it you you run to the top of the the mountain and try to get the perfect shot 
and you're never going to get it, but you keep chasing it. Yeah. Um, Which is uh, exactly what fame ends up being like for a lot of people. Oh, things connect to each other. (laughs) Ooh, chills. It's almost like Jordan Peele's very good at this. Yeah. Yeah, But that's what I love about this film. Like, the more you talk about it, the more I'm seeing connections, whether I'm interpreting them accurately or not. But I see why all of this is in the same film. And then we have this, like, stunning last shot of Kiki seeing... That I, I keep saying Kiki because, like, she's geeky to me. But, uh, like, Emerald. Emerald seeing OJ. And he just looks like the fucking man on his horse, in the fog, in the dust. And he's John Wayne. He's he's the fucking man. And she sees him and she's smiling and she's crying. And it's it's so beautiful. I love that he's alive at the end. I love that she's so happy to see him. And I was like damn damn jordan this is a good fucking movie Mm -hmm. completely agree and i think that you know it is even if people felt like people might have felt confused by it or like there isn't you know it does because it doesn't have a specific coherent like uh political message like get out did that it's that there's something wrong with that but there's also the simple fact that it made a shitload of money its first weekend and not to say yeah, box office and- everything, but it's important because this is a movie full yes. of it's directed by a black directed, written by a black guy, black stars, Asian stars, uh, Puerto Rican, Filipino star. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and really like, and, and people turned out. And it's not fucking IP. It's an original idea. It's an original idea of something that's an old idea, which I feel like is even more difficult to do. Like to to look at an alien movie and be like, what if it's not a spaceship? I was like, that to me was so cool and not in an overly in love with a, a twisty plot. Not in like an M. Night Shyamalan way, right? Where like M. Night Shyamalan, I, I feel like was unfairly burdened very early on in his career with having to be the big twist at the end guy. Right. And I feel like that ultimately derailed him for upwards of a decade, you know, because the, the twist became more and more eye rolly, more and more ham fisted, never again, got that magic back of the sixth sense. Right. We've been talking about trying to (laughs) recapture the magic. He couldn't get back to the sixth sense because of course he can't because he did that and it's done now. So it's unfair to keep expecting that of him. And Jordan, I feel like after Get Out, people were like, okay, you're the political guy now. And I feel like this was sort of like double middle fingers to that. Yeah. Where he's like, I'm going to tell an original story the way I want to tell it. And it's not going to be overtly political, but it is going to speak to, I feel like this film speaks to certain truths about human nature. And in a way it, it's even more universal for that reason. Absolutely. I also have to say, I think that this is, and I don't think it was intentional, but I, at thinking about it, to me, it's also a giant middle figure finger to J.J. Um, Abrams being like, oh, <laughs> you thought Super 8 is like, Super 8 was cute. Let me show cute. you what we, <laughs> what the real creative people do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I thought like that, I, I told that to a friend of mine and she was like, Ooh, it's like, I don't know why that made that delighted me so much, but I think it's just that it's so cool to see someone actually taking the bones and the, the spirit of these great spectacle film adventure filmmakers, and then doing something new with it, as opposed to aping it at, like completely and putting out something that's sweet, but not original right and and it it like inspired me but it also made me so frustrated (laughs) with like the modern state of the industry if you will because I was like I mean Jordan Peele's incredible but I was also like man how many cool stories could we have told by now but and again I love Marvel I'm a Marvel head, love the MCU. I am part of the problem, everybody. I go to see all the films. I also am am ruining movies. But if we just weren't constantly recycling and, you know, exploring the cinematic universe of IP, you know, like if we just 
gave original storytellers a bunch of money and were like, go. And you're not going to get studio notes. We're going to leave you the fuck alone because we believe in you artistically. And what did you come up with? Like, we would have so many more notes. <laughs> mm-hmm. This yeah. is absolutely true. Uh, Am I going to stop going to see Marvel films? You're wondering. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I will never. <laughs> I will never break you of that. The bubble will burst eventually, but you know, it's it's, I be- feel like it's already. I do feel like it's starting to burst already, to be honest with you, because a lot of Marvel fans are very unhappy with what's happening right now. Maybe it's because more people of color and women are involved now. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I but mean, it could. It's what's weird, their though. Is, yeah. yeah. Well, they're unhappy. And also, yeah, there's there's more diversity. Also, the movies aren't very good and haven't been good for a long time. Yeah, no, that is true. It's always been a mixed bag. You'll get like one good one for maybe every eight films. Um, I would say uh, 5% of the TV shows have been good. <laughs> like it, it's always a mixed bag because that's what happens when you're putting out a shit ton of content very quickly. You're unable to spend time with the material and really develop it, you know, and Look what happens when a, a filmmaker is able to do that, right? Like every time Jordan Peele puts out something, it is very obvious he has spent years thinking about it and storyboarding and exploring ideas and really fine tuning the visual imagery. Like he is a craftsman and he takes his craft very seriously, but he's also a playful dude. You know, he comes from the world of comedy. So it's it's not too heavy and it's just it's why people keep talking about Steven Spielberg with him, not just because there's several homages to Steven Spielberg in this film, which there are, but he's the same kind of like when you in the 70s went to go see or the 80s or 90s went to go see a Steven Spielberg film. You were like, this is going to be a good fucking time. This is going to be a movie. I'm going to be glad I spent my money to see this. That's Jordan Peele. And that I left feeling like that. I was like, man, that film had everything. I laughed. I cried. I saw something I'd never seen before. And I'm still thinking about it. Yep. Yep. Me too. I might go see it again just today. Listen, I'm going to tell you, talking about it with you made me want to see it so badly again, which I was like, (laughs) man, that's how you can tell like, A, we made a good call spending the hour talking about it. But also I was like, yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie. I want to see it again. Yeah, I will. I will. Um, Is there anything else while we still have some time that you wanted to talk about? Oh, hey, I'll put this out there, everybody. I finally I'm like famously late to certain things. Like (laughs) I I listened to all the Harry Potter books in the year. Well, this was right before pandemic. So uh, 2020. I listened to all of them and was like talking about it on the show. And people actually really loved it because, um, you know, I mean, J.K. Rowling had gone transphobe by then, but she hadn't gone like fully off the rails in the way that she is now. So people could still like enjoy enjoying Harry Potter. you know. Um, But I am, again, famously late. I have started to watch Supernatural, everybody. Thanks to me. I thought I will take. Thanks, Meredith. Uh, I'm very proud. In and my I'm notes, very happy for you. In my notes, I wrote down "Supernatural." It begins, and that's how I feel. <laughs> yeah, I am on season one of like 87 seasons of Supernatural, and you're probably wondering, Allison, you were on Tumblr. How did you avoid ever seeing Supernatural? And my answer to that is, I was on Tumblr, and I felt like I had watched Supernatural because if you were on Tumblr. In the early aughts, they were very popular. They were like a very popular show. I saw one million gifts of Supernatural. I knew all the characters without having seen (laughs) an episode of the show. So I really felt I had lived it. But then, you know, I had not watched it. And I was like, I really like Jensen on The Boys. I should give it up for his origins. So I've started to watch it. And I will say I'm watching it as like, kind of a background show while I'm doing other stuff, but I, I'm sort of, um, passively consuming it, if you will. And I think that's really the way to do it. I mean, there was a period of time when 
it was on for a couple hours every morning on TNT. So it was occupying one of those slots that in the early 90s used to belong to like original Law and Order, which Mm -hmm. in its own way is really hilarious that it had become so it was such an established property that TNT was just like, people want to watch some surprisingly violent uh, suit like mystery show about ghosts and goblins and demons. Uh, It is surprisingly violent. Like there's been a couple moments where I went, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, I didn't think it was going to be that graphic, but that's sort of also keeping me interested because I feel like the thing I asked you before I started watching it was, is it cheesy like Buffy was cheesy? Because Buffy was cheesy in a way that because I didn't watch it when I was a kid, I was, like, too old by the time I saw it as an adult. And I was like, this is so corny. It's, like, turning me off. Supernatural, I feel like, is dark enough where... It, it doesn't fall into that trap. Yeah. Also, it's you're watching two Labradors play wrestle. Yeah. For it's 43 too, minutes. <laughs> it's two big, dumb men who can't express themselves emotionally, but love each other so much. And they're both so charming and stupid that it's like, yeah, it's it's two golden retrievers just trying to make it work. And I'm enjoying it. Uh, so that's exciting. And also, I should mention, everyone, please follow Meredith on all the socials, Meredith L. Clark. I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny. I will be posting more bonus content soon. Charles and I just came up with a very fun idea where, Meredith, I actually, I don't know if I told you this, but occasionally Charles and I do our, like, top favorite conspiracy theories that we've heard about on the internet as, like, a bonus episode So we came up with an idea that we want to do a bonus episode of Real Housewives related conspiracy theories. (laughs) Because like, to me, that's like the two sides of every TikTok video. I I like it's either Housewives content or conspiracy theories. And I'm like, oh, my God, what if we did a Housewives conspiracy theory episode? So that will be coming uh, as soon as I can figure out scheduling. There's a bunch of bonus content up there already. If you want to send in recommendations, guess what? We have way more time to talk about recommendations now. So if you're a supporter of mine for as little as $5 a month, you get to skip the line, send in questions, comments, recommendations. And by the way, everybody, um, this doesn't mean that I don't want political recommendations anymore. Like if you are working on something in your community, if there's like a really important cause that you want to get the word out about, that is always welcome. We can still talk about politics. We just won't force it anymore. So, yeah. And as always, updates, if you're running for office, I know some of you have done that as well and you want to get the word out, let me know. And yeah, anything else, Meredith? Do you want to promote anything? Uh, not at the... Oh, I do want to do a quick promotion. A dear friend of mine, Gina Cadlett, uh, has a memoir coming out in October called Heretic. It's about growing up in the Midwest in an evangelical family and having to deal with the trauma of that while also realizing that she is a big lesbian. So uh, it's a wonderful book. Oh my God. I instantly, I instantly was like, there are three people I want to yeah. send that to. And I feel like, <laughs> like the, who I know, have I feel like listener that. that there are probably a lot of listeners who might really enjoy or appreciate reading uh, her book. It's a really smart take. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer, really thoughtful. Um, but also her experience growing up in the evangelical church and trying to, uh, you know, first buying into and then trying to force herself into the the vision of womanhood that she had been raised to believe was the only way forward uh, and then figuring out how to free herself from that uh, just seems like something that read like a lot of uh Little, uh, little, tr- like little troublemakers, a lot of troublemakers. Might- little <laughs> I feel like there are some troublemakers <laughs> that might relate to some or, or all of that. And, uh, it's available for pre-order. So order it from like, put a pre-order in for your, at your independent bookstore and help her make this book, uh, get some more attention. Say her name one more time. Uh, Gina Cadlich, uh, K-A-D-L-I-C. And her first name is J-E-N. A J E N N A. Sorry. Got it. I I see it. Uh, Awesome. Because I want to link to it. Um, Yeah. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this. Let me know thoughts. Hashtag light trees and pod. Congratulations on having a name troublemakers. I I hope everybody's okay with that. If you're not, you don't have to accept the title. 
you don't. Uh, And yeah, thank you so much for listening. And while you're at it, get out there and cause a little trouble. 